This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer or mobile device instantly streamed by Netflix to save you time, money, and hassle. Free 30-day trial now at netflix.com APM. Meredith Monk makes music and theater that feel edgy and ancient at the very same time. She creates sweeping productions, joining music and movement, light and sound on stages around the world. At the same time, as one New Yorker writer put it, she conveys a fundamental humanity and humility that are rare in new music circles. Meredith Monk is a kind of archaeologist of the human voice and body. And the woman we meet is also an archaeologist of the mind and spirit with a longtime Buddhist practice. Through music, as through meditation, she pushes the boundaries of what we can do without words, reaching to places in human experience where words can get in the way. human voice is the original instrument. So you're going back to the very beginnings of of utterance. In a way, it's like um, the memory of being a human being. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM, American Public Media. Meredith Monk has received innumerable honors across her career, from Guggenheim and MacArthur Fellowships to an honorary doctorate at Juilliard. I interviewed her in 2012. Early on, she had some classical training, but she often speaks of a moment of revelation she had after first moving to New York City in the 1960s, a revelation that the voice could be like the body. It could have a kind of articulation and flexibility and fluidity that the body, the spine, have and that she could find her own vocabulary as a singer, with choreography, movement, as her way in. This was, in fact, a connection Meredith Monk had known intimately in her childhood. To correct early difficulties with bodily coordination, she learned Dalcro's Eurythmics, a music education method using movement and all the senses to create physical awareness. Her great-grandfather was a cantor in Russia. Her mother was best known as a singer of jingles and ads for radio. So you are, I I read, a fourth-generation singer. Mm -hmm. And I did find that so interesting that your mother sang for radio because what it reminded me of is that when I was growing up in a very small town, I imagined that when I heard a song coming out of the radio, there was a person singing it at my small town radio station, right? I, I used to think that. how exhausted they got that they had to go around to all the radio. But your mother actually was somebody who did that. She was there every day because uh, in, the, in those days there wasn't tape. So she did a, a soap commercial. It was called D-U-Z Does Everything. And she did it for a soap opera. And so she was at one o'clock every day for The Road of Life, which was ongoing for years. So it, it was it was a live situation every day. It seems to me that, so obviously music was, was in you from the beginning. It seems to me that there's such an organic link between your art and what we call spirituality. 
and I just wonder if that was there in your childhood, was that connection there, whether it was expressed or not. I'm not sure whether I was aware of it as a little child, but I was very much um, uh, in love with music, and I, I remember that I used to sing myself to sleep when I was a child. I mean, it was a very natural, singing was a natural kind of language for me, mm-hmm. and um, my mother told me that I would sing things back right away, even before I started talking, and I read music before I read words, actually. And it's so it's interesting, if you look at your stories, you never really left that behind that is something that really became very clear to me as I just kind of immersed in your music is um, one thing we definitely put together in Western music when the voice is involved is words and music, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and exactly. I, I almost felt some kind of resistance in myself, right? Like, that, like you know, it needed words to be a song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That's, see, for me... Well, I, you know, there are the wonderful songsmiths and, and wonderful people that do put words and music together in such a beautiful way. And, you know, it is very enlightening to hear that music. But for me, the words get in the way, actually, yeah. of the heart-to-heart kind of expression that allows for um, each person to hear it and, and hook into their minds and hook into their hearts and hook into their memory. And you know, I'm I'm saying this was kind of an initial resistance, which which goes away, and it didn't it didn't really contradict you know the beauty that I was experiencing. I just think it was an expectation that was that had to be suspended. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what you're saying, though, you know, maybe there's also a layer of kind of um, of emotional surprise because, as you say, then things are being communicated that do bypass words. And yeah, because I think emotion or feeling. You know, we have so many more shades of feeling that we can't label. And I guess ultimately as an artist, I'm so interested in uncovering the invisible and the uh, uncovering the, you know, the mysterious and uncovering, um, what would I say, the inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the things that we actually can't label, mm-hmm. that's, that's a kind of, um, you know, mentality. Right. Words are always approximate for mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when people say that you're a pioneer of extended vocal techniques, you know, how would you explain that and, you know, what that, the origin of that is and what that means to you? I think it's just that um, when I had the rev- that revelation, I realized that the voice could be used like an instrument. And so um, it was really more knowing that anything was possible with the human voice. And I think that that's what people are now calling extended vocal technique. I mean, <clears throat> I've always been loath to categorize anything. And, you know, to even call it like a category like that, um, you know, is, I guess, it, again, it's a way that people can identify something. But um, I think I was just thinking more in terms of the voice as the messenger of my soul. Hmm. And I was just f- trying to follow it to the best of my ability and to listen uh, to what it needed to do and say. And... Um, so that that's more the way that I was working. And so something like dolmen music is it also becomes kind of an orchestra, vocal orchestra. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. It's, it's funny when you hear it, it's kind of hard to realize that there's only six singers. It sounds like yes. there might be uh, 12 or 20 or something yeah. like that. So um, it, it also is very much about keeping the flexibility of not only the voice, but also the mind and 
the spirit. I mean, the, the people that were singing with me in Dolma music, I met them when they were very young. And so they didn't have the expectations and having to drop what they had learned, um, the language of the voice and the way that I was working with it was something that became second nature to them. You know, I think that singing together is very, very intimate, and I always say that the music or the images or anything are just a kind of armature for, for revealing the radiance of these performers. You know, that's, that, I realized that when I was making Atlas. This, it was a, th a three-act work. It had a wall that moved and, you know, an orchestra. I was like, oh, you know, just, um, I mean, it, it was everything but the kitchen sink in there. I mean, not in terms of the form, but I mean, you know, there was another opera going on backstage because the costumes were flying and everything <laughs> back there. So, I, you know, so it was a big, big production. And I realized at a certain point that, you know, that all of that was is very beautiful, but really what was happening there was just an armature to allow for, or a structure or form to allow for these amazing performers, these generous, radiant performers, for that to come across. And I think that performing is, you're so in tune with each other. You know, it's, it's such an amazing template of the possibility of human behavior, of generosity and being there for the other person and, um, mm. you know, being so sensitive to the environment and to the other people. Tippett, and this is On Being, today with composer, singer, director, and choreographer Meredith Monk. You know, you have a Buddhist practice, right? A meditation mm -hmm. practice? Mm -hmm. I wondered as I was kind of, you know, reading you and watching you... Um, you know, you've talked about singing like meditation. The, the focus, the, the meditation mm -hmm. focus is also there when you're, when you're singing, the, the presence. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you think that gives you a different relationship to the audience. Hmm. Um, you know, in a way, I always say that as a young artist, I think I knew some of these uh, what I would now call fundamental Buddhist principles, but I, I feel like I knew them intuitively as a young artist and a performer. And then at a certain point, I was asked to teach at Naropa Institute, and then I, you know, it was through the art, you know, not through the Buddhist <laughs> practice, but really through the art that I learned about Buddhism. And then I realized all these things that I had had as principles, aesthetic principles, really were fundamental Buddhist principles. So that was really interesting. And one of them is something that you're talking about, which is um, I always think of the relationship between the audience and the performer as a kind of infinity sign or a figure eight of energy that goes from mm. the performer to the audience and then back to the, from the audience back to the performer. And it's just this constant flow of energy between these two bodies of people, but the, the beauty of a live performance is that we're all in the same space at the same time. Right. And I don't think we have that many situations in, in the world like that. You've even talked about the audience as a congregation, which is interesting. Yeah. 
I mean, I feel like like a dinosaur holding out a live performance, <laughs> live performance, you know, not the screen, live performance, because I think that there is something about it that's so unique and, and it's so necessary to remember again. I always see you also insisting that um, that music is about waking up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that and I don't know if those t- two things have to be intention, but I sense that if you had to choose between transcendence and waking up and being right there in that moment, you would choose the latter. And as you're saying, I mean, live performance is as direct and awake an experience, one hopes, as anything we do. Mm-hmm. That's also, again, so interesting because uh, actually I don't see those two things as opposites. I actually think that when you are that present mm-hmm. and you are that awake and the audience actually experiences themselves, you know, mm. the deepest part of themselves, then the whole situation becomes transcendent mm. because we're not, because our the way we live our lives is not necessarily with that level of presence. Right. And and also certainly in the society, we're taught to actually be distracted and diverted all the time from feeling, in a sense, you could say the pain, uh, the good pain, you know, the pain as in open-heartedness and, and um, raw rawness of the moment, the pain as well as the pleasure, everything in, in one in that moment. One of the words that that has been a subject, an artistic subject for you, is mercy. Thinking about a spiritual notion, a religious notion, certainly a Buddhist notion. The reason that came to me, you know, after what you just said, is I, I was talking. Um, not too long ago with a, a great scholar of the Old Testament prophets. <laughs> There's a different connection for you, okay? And he reminded me that the Hebrew word for mercy has connotations of the womb, um, as it does, in fact, the Arabic word. Oh. And, um, but you know what? That sounds so kind of pretty, <laughs> kind of lovely, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and I mm-hmm. said to him, you know, isn't that wonderful? Because the connection of the mother to the child is kind of the absolute image we have for um, seeing someone else's well-being as connected to our own. And he yeah. said, and I'm finally getting to the connection here. He said, yes, because it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. And you just, yes. and I actually, you just echoed this, but when I was looking at something you wrote about mercy, you, you use words like pain, joy, perseverance, continuance, that, that whole mm-hmm. complex. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just offer that up to you as something I that's heard. That's so interesting. Well, these last years, and, and maybe mercy was the first time I was very aware of it. I mean, I think for many years, I mean, I've been trying to think, how do I really keep on affirming that my Buddhist practice or meditation practice and my art practice are actually one? There's no there's no difference at all. There was a certain point, the, it was the early 90s, that I did a piece called Facing North, which was very inspired by being up at Banff, Canada, and the silence and the snow and, um, you know, just this incredible environment. And I, I was very aware that I was making a very meditative piece and that it was uh, like making a piece about sacred space. So that, that was you know, what I was aware of at that point. But uh, when I started working on Mercy, um, and I was collaborating with a wonderful visual artist, Anne Hamilton, so we did a lot of talking about this, I started becoming aware of of the fact that actually I wanted to spend the rest of my life working on pieces that I... It was basically making pieces about something you can't make pieces about. So there was never <laughs> going to be like a definitive statement about anything, but it was much more that the the act of making artwork was also the act of contemplating something. Mm-hmm. And so Mercy was the first. The second one was Impermanence, 
Um, and then the latest piece that I've been working on with this this way of thinking about things is called Songs of Ascension. So right, those, those are the three I wanted to talk yeah. to you about. So that, and yeah. so you know, that's just I don't think my practice of making art is so much different from you know the way that it always was, but it's much more just being aware of how do we spend time on this planet? How do you do work that's of benefit? That and I think um, Anne Hamilton and I talked a lot about. Um, Mercy being, you know, the basic theme of mercy was help and harm. Mm-hmm. You know, aspects more. of help and harm. Well, it's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, the piece was quite abstract. It was not really, um, you know, it wasn't situations particularly. And one thing that I think pushed us over to really wanting to make a piece that would be called Mercy was that when I was in Ohio, the first time talking with her and working with her, um, we happened to see on television there was a news broadcast of, uh, it was the time of the Intifada, and there was a, a young father in, in, and in his, Israel. In, yes, mm-hmm. and there was a, a young father and his son. They were and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and both of the soldiers from both sides shot them, mm. even though they were asking for mercy, basically. They were just coming home from school, and and they were in a situation, and these soldiers could not let them go by. So that was pretty shock. You know, I I found that pretty shocking because it was, um, it wasn't um, that it was a situation that was any kind of danger or you know when the adrenaline goes up or anything. Mm -hmm. There were decisions that were made there, and so that was something to think about. That was harm. You know, and they were kind um, of caught in a situation where mercy didn't seem couldn't apply or something Mm -hmm. in that situation. So I think that we started thinking about, for example, that the hand can hold a trigger, you know, can hold a a gun, or the hand can actually touch someone, you know, Mm -hmm. in in the society where there's not a lot of touch. The mouth can scream, you know, the voice can scream, or the mouth can sing a lullaby. Mm -hmm. And so we did, there were a lot of images of hands and mouths in the piece. Songs of Ascension. I mean, Ascension is also a, a religious image, or it's it's mm-hmm. a very common religious image that you find in different traditions. Mm-hmm. Well, I was interested with that um, in why does worship always go up, <laughs> or you know, or in a lot of traditions, there's this idea of heaven or going up, and how about going down, like you know, like the earth, say in Native American cultures. So I was thinking about that, but. The genesis of Songs of Ascension came from having dinner with a wonderful friend of mine, Norman Fisher, who is a very he's fine Zen poet. Abbot, right? Yes, and former he's, Zen, he's, huh? he's a former Zen abbot mm-hmm. and a wonderful poet, and we're good friends. And uh, we were—I was just asking him what was he working on, and he was saying that he was working on translating the Psalms into contemporary language that also took into account his Zen practice. And he also—we mm-hmm. both come from a Jewish 
and, you know, background. And so, you know, we're both Jubus. And so, you know, we have that in common. And he's been going back to t- actually teaching meditation for uh, Jewish practitioners. Uh, you know, people who come from the Jewish tradition, he's teaching Jewish meditation, which is pretty great. And, yeah. and so he was also talking about Paul Salon, who I was not familiar with, the, the, uh, the poet who was a survivor of World War II, who talked about the Psalms that were called Song of Ascents. Right. They sometimes are called songs of ascent and sometimes they're called song of ascents. And basically what, what they are are songs that are always about climbing up the mountain to the temple. On the top of the mountain, there were 15 stairs that went to the temple. And so people would, would take a step and then sing a psalm and then take the next step and sing mm. a psalm. And so to me that was so fascinating. And also there were instruments as well. And so this idea of procession or walking, walking and making music as a, a, a form of worship. These things were just going through my mind and, and you know, music in space and, and uh, music as worship. Monk eventually performed Songs of Ascension in an unusual space, itself a work of art, a 78-foot tower that the visual artist Anne Hamilton helped create at a ranch in Northern California. It looks like a medieval concrete turret sunken into the Sonoma County hills. Inside, there's a spiraling staircase infused with light but no view of the landscape, only a circular opening to the sky. tower is eight stories high, but it's not very big in terms of how far away you are from each other. And it's got a double helix staircase that go up to the top. Mm -hmm. And so that also that DNA, the idea of DNA seemed so interesting to me. And how would you make a musical structure that had that double spiral kind of form? I'm not sure I successfully did that, but I mean, it was very inspiring to work with it. DNA has that core, but then it has all these little offshoots. And how would you work with that musically and visually and, you know, with the body? So and you also had these musicians a, were all over the place in the tower, right? Yes. And the audience, the way that the double helix works is that the audience is on one strand and then the performers are on the other strand. But if you looked at it, you actually wouldn't know how it worked exactly in, because you never can reach where the audience is except to go over the top and back around, mm-hmm. but you're really close to the audience. So in a way, the audience and the performers are woven together. It's yeah. such a beautiful situation. You're and like so on parallel staircases. We're on parallel staircases, and, but we can never reach each other. So. But, but but you know what What struck me also, though, is it's, it's songs of ascension. But when I watch this, it's the circular. I mean, there's the moment where, you, where everything goes up and down again, right? So yes, it was. It was actually circular. It wasn't just up. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know. I know that maybe the song. Maybe I should have called it 
called it songs of going up and down. <laughs> but, uh, well, no, but, but maybe I, Ascension always has going down in it or something. You know? I think it does. Uh, uh, you know, I think there are two parts of the, you know, we have the heaven principle, the mm-hmm. earth principle, and the human principle. And they, you weave them together, and that's how they're, you know, they're unified. Yeah. So it had both aspects, but also the acoustical situation in that in that tower was so unique, and you know to be able to even hear each other was so interesting. So I, I was just trying to work with that very extreme. Like sometimes something would come from way down at the bottom, hmm. and the rest of the performers would be way up at the top, but the one performer would be way down at the bottom, and the audience couldn't see the entire thing, but you could hear the whole thing. true of your art but it's also true of your of your buddhism I'm, i want to say this um you know it's always a cliche to imagine that buddhism is just about you know sitting down following the breath or making <laughs> your mind empty you know right that's the the simplistic uh cliche but i i really see you kind of living and working with th- this also this narrative playful kind of melodrama that's there in Buddhist tradition, right? Stories about mm-hmm. Milarepa and the cave and the demons coming in and mm-hmm, <laughs> inviting mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. to tea. There's a playfulness in your art and in the way you bring your uh, spiritual sensibility into that. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Are you? Yes, I do. <sighs> I mean, I think it's something. Play, play is something to really think about. You know, mm-hmm. because. I, I, I say that to myself. You know, right now I'm working on a, a commission for a San Francisco symphony, and I just keep on saying, remember playfulness, Meredith? <laughs> when I'm like at the piano, just like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? Um, but, I mean, I think that sense of playfulness is is um, the sense of, of being alive. That's another aspect of being awake. Mm-hmm. And the, and mm-hmm. the fluidity, uh, the, it's really about fluidity, about being so in the moment that you are in pinpoint focus, but at the same time, you're completely open to what the moment has to give you or to tell you. And I think that has to do with the playfulness and that, and people can feel that, you know, I think that that's what you're giving an audience is that spirit of, of, of the give and take that playfulness um, implies. Right. It's awake and it's responsive. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And light. I think there's something in, in uh, which is also about um, Buddhism. You know, the wonderful practice, and certainly you you hear that a lot in the Zen, with the Zen practice with Suzuki Roshi and you know all these um, you know these these masters that are just saying lighten up. <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of Buddhism is that the Buddha was, you know, he always said, "Don't believe what I say, find out for yourself." Watch video of Meredith Monk performing Songs of Ascension in Anne Hamilton's Tower. Find links at onbeing.org. You can get the latest from On Being every week in our email newsletter. Our favorite blog posts, behind-the-scenes stories of how we put the show together, and responses from listeners. We've recently changed how we send out the newsletter. So even if you get it now, renew your subscription. All we ask for is your email address. Click on the newsletter link at onbeing.org. 
Coming up, Meredith Monk on aging, loss, and impermanence. Also, her thoughts on curiosity as an antidote to fear. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly, streamed now by Netflix. A great value. A fan of classic movies or documentaries? Netflix Streaming has lots of options and TV series including Downton Abbey, Amazing Planet, and Biography. Watch them using Netflix Instant Streaming and find thousands of other TV series and movies during your free 30-day trial at netflix.com slash APM. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Meredith Monk. She's an archaeologist of the human voice as the original musical instrument. She creates performance pieces that join music, movement, light, and image. In recent years, an eclectic array of other artists have begun to perform her unusual songs and make them their own, including Gabriel Prokofiev, Bjork, and DJ Spooky. Here's his interpretation of Meredith Monk's Dawn from the CD Monk Mix. talking about how her life in music and her Buddhist practice have shaped her personal wisdom on life and humanity. She often takes up spiritually and religiously evocative themes such as ascension, mercy, and impermanence. So I, I would love to talk about um, impermanence in that project, and I know that that has also been connected with, with life for you. Um, Very much so. Mm-hmm. So would you would you tell that story? And well, I lost my partner of twenty two years, so that was a very that was um, in a sense that was the biggest um, wake up call that I ever had in my life up to that point, and probably from that point on, because I think that when you have uh, that kind of loss, um, I, nothing can ever be the same. And it was a blessing, uh, you know. I, I also saw the blessing, not the blessing of the loss, but the blessing of being part of of life and and the blessing of being aware of the billions of people that go through loss all the time. So, you know, in a way, I feel like you can be compassionate of other people's pain, but if you really haven't experienced it, it's really hard to know what that really does to the way that you think about life and death. So it was very profound. And um, I really tried to not separate myself from the grieving process and or not try to defend myself from the grieving process, but to really go right into it and right through it. And I knew that there was never going to be an end. You know, it's 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 kind of a it's really a folly to tell you know, to say to someone, Well, have you gotten over it? or, you know, has there been closure? I mean, there really never is. Mm-hmm. And that again is the beauty of of knowing that we will be here and gone, you know, the light goes on and the little light bulb goes off, but you leave love behind. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, you just leave love behind. That's what it comes down to. The Beatles had it right. (laughs) All you need is love. I mean, it's really true. And so, you know, there was, it was such a feeling of being part of the sea of life, the sea of humanity. And 
um, the raw heartedness of, of life that makes you appreciate so much the moments that you have. So what happened uh, that was really interesting was that about two months after she died, I got an email from uh, a group in, in England that they call themselves Rosetta Life. And what they do is that they go into the different hospices in England and um, they work with the people that have had the diagnosis of terminal illness. And they say, well, is there any kind of artwork that you would like to do? You know, would you like to write a poem about your process or, or about anything? Would you like to, you know, make some music? And then they'll get an artist to go in and help them. Hmm. So, you know, if somebody wants to make a painting, but they've never painted in their lives, but they feel that that's the way they're going to express this process, somebody comes in and helps them. A painter comes in and helps them to make make a work. And so they, they said, well, we're going to have a festival of these uh, hospice patients work and we'd like you to make some music I think it was for a play or it might have been a play of, of some of the stories of these uh, people that were in this process and um, would you do that and I said well I actually don't work that way you know with stories and narrative that much but I would really actually like to make a total piece um, and and I'm thinking of nothing but impermanence so I think I'll call it the impermanence project <laughs> and you know I'd like to make the whole piece After I started working on it a few months later, I said, what was I thinking? You know, so again, it was this, how do you make a piece about impermanence? It's impossible. You know, it's like an oxymoron to make a form about a project impermanence. About yeah, a project about impermanence. So um, on, a, on a long retreat that I did up at Gampo Abbey, which is up in, in uh, Canada, in, in Nova Scotia, of course, I was supposed to label it thinking immediately when I got the idea, but it, I did keep it in my mind, I have to admit. But um, I, I got this image of... Um, <laughs> okay. Don't tell anybody. You're going to be in meditation. So I got the image of um, a crystal, like holding a crystal in your hand, and that you look at these different facets or faces of a crystal... And that if, if I started working that way, in other words, that we're glimpsing at this one facet of impermanence and then we turn it over and maybe the next facet has nothing to do with the first facet, but we're seeing another side of it, that that would actually be a beautiful structure. Hmm. And so what the first part of impermanence is that each of the sections, we actually say the name of the section. So if I'm singing last song, I just say last song and then I sing it or, or we have another section called particular dance or seeds or, um, you know, there are different titles of the sections, or um, disequilibrium is another section. So so it's very honest, and I thought that was a good way of, of trying to work with it. And then the other part of it was that they had asked me if I could do something with the hospice patients. And so we had this wonderful workshop. I came to London, and mostly we were just doing a lot of talking. Um, people were laughing a lot. And a lot of it was about pain management and just about mm. their experiences. So um, I sang The Tale, which is a very funny piece where it's about this old woman who, um, you know, is talking about, I still have my hands. Ha, ha, ha. It's like one, it's one of my songs that actually really has text, but it's more <laughs> like a, a sort of litany. 
Um, so they loved that, you know, because it was really funny. And they said, we want to hear this bit again. We love that. And then I sang last song for them and it, because I had started working on it. And um, some of them said that it was actually almost too much, that it was too close to the process that they were going mm. through. And then, but then they said the more they heard it, they could have heard it all night. So, you know, it was, became this kind of also something really intimate for them. Last round, last inning, last exit. Last ditch, last rites, last supper Last days, last judgment, last words The last word, last words, the last word Last rose of summer Last goodbye, last ditch, last... Why do you sometimes decide to add words? I mean, how do you know that? You just... Because that's pretty rare for you, isn't it? Yeah, well, the way that I... If I do use words, they're really used more abstractly. It's not like... um, if you hear the words, you actually are a story is being told. Right. It's actually more almost like a chant yeah. is the way that I think about it. Yeah. Like um, both the tale and last song have this sense of the word as litany. And um, and I think in last song, what I was going for was the idea of saying a word, but then little by little, the word dissolves mm. into pure sound. Well, see, that's still different from... It's still different from the way that, you know, singing a song where mm-hmm. the song is actually giving you the content exactly. in a way. So what I ended up doing, because they asked if if I could do something where their experiences or they were actually in the piece, and that became difficult for me because it's hard for me to work that way. And so what I ended up coming up with was that the piece began with hearing them sing a melody called Mika's Melody Number no. 5, which was a, a melody that my partner... Um, she used to like to just improvise in the studio even though she was not a singer. And I happened to come upon a tape of some of these improvisations. Mm. And so what I did was I notated one of them and then I actually changed it a little bit and, you know, made it more into a form and added some of my own phrases. So it was a little bit like a collaboration through time and space. (laughs) And so I wrote out the melody and because they said, oh, we love to sing. And so I wrote the (laughs) melody out for them and then they sang it and they, you know, they, but they didn't, couldn't really carry a tune that well, but it was so, each of them sang it, you know, so um, the melody goes like, um, Ayo, 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 zo, ayo, ayo, zo. So, you know, that was the melody. And then they'd be going like, ayo, 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 zo. <laughs> and so each of them had a different way of doing it. And so when the audience came in, they um, heard the, their voices. And then I had a film of just their faces just looking straight out at the camera, very, mm. very, very close. And so when they came to see it, the ones that were still alive by the time we did Impermanence, it just meant so much to them. And then also their families for the the ones that had passed before we ended up oh, doing the piece, it meant so much to them. Right. So they were actually really present in the piece. So that was a, another aspect that was really beautiful. Tippett, and this is On Being, today with composer and singer Meredith Monk. So, I mean, this whole notion of impermanence and the death of your partner, it's clear also that it's been for you, it's also coincided with you thinking about aging 
um, and I've you know I've seen you out there talking about that, talking with Bjork about that, and you talked to Bjork about that mm-hmm, about aging, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and um, and in Buddhist fashion, I mean, also talking about these things as teachers. I I have to also say that. Uh, there's such a fluidity in your body and your movement. I mean, I've, mm. I'm just I'm not sitting across from you, unfortunately, but watching you <laughs> on video that kind of feels ageless, and your your braids are ageless, also. Um, uh, is that something that you're working with? Um, you know, how how are you experiencing that, or how how do you think your art uh, shapes the way you might be experiencing that? Well, I've been noticing that the older that I get, the simpler uh, the work gets in a way. Mm. I mean, in a way, it's more refining it from something very complex to something very simple. One of the beauties of being an artist is that it is timeless. And, um, you know, the funny thing is that it doesn't get any easier. Mm. (laughs) I mean, you would think that you've been, you know, I've been working for so many years that, oh, I can make a piece so easily. But I think what I do is I put myself through the pro- the same process of going to zero every time right, right. and, you know, this kind of risky situation. And so sometimes I'm, uh, you know, I think, why do I do this and why, you know, isn't it more easy now after all these years? But I actually think that that's what does keep you very young, you know, because you're always questioning. Mm. You know, I think that m- making art is actually about questions and, um, and that you never take anything for granted, and you're you're in this slightly danger situation, which I think is really good. And then I always say that I'm scared to death, and I think uh, um, you know what we what we learn in in, in Buddhist practices to tolerate the unknown, you mm-hmm. know, because that that's reality. The reality is that we don't know anything, and um, we really don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And so you learn to tolerate that discomfort of not knowing. And fear. I mean, I really. I think every time I'm, I'm just terrified. I'm actually terrified. I realize this every even now working you, on this piece. When you every perform, time. when you write, when you're no. creating something. Well, well, when I perform, I'm still nervous, which I think is a good sign, mm-hmm. because it means that you still have passion for what you're doing. But every time I make something new, it's never like, oh, this is going to be so easy. No, it's always this terror, and then I sit with that for a while, and then I say to myself, step by step. And then I just start working, and it's a step-by-step kind of process. And then at a certain point, I realize I'm so interested in this. And then once that interest comes in or curiosity comes in, then the fear goes away. Hmm. And so that's, it's very interesting that curiosity is a great antidote to fear. Mm, it is, that's a lovely, lovely thing to think about. I know some journalist was writing the one thing that happens when when someone listens to you, when you hear this music come out of your voice, then you want to see if you can do that with your voice. And I, I mm-hmm. found that to be absolutely true. So I've been walking been around clicking? singing. No, no <laughs> not clicking. I haven't tried that. But, I mean, it's interesting because, and it, I think maybe counterintuitive, because what comes out of your mouth is not like other songs that you've learned in your life, right? It's mm-hmm, it's it's mm-hmm. it's recognizable as music, but... Um, mm-hmm. It's different, and yet uh, it feels familiar, right? It feels like something you take in and want mm-hmm. to take in. Well, I think that it's actually all of us as human beings are part of the world vocal family. I like <laughs> to think that all of us are part of that, that world vocal family. When you start exploring your voice, there are sounds that you find that do transcend a particular culture. You know, it, it, they there are... They're used in different ways in the culture, but they are sounds that are part of the vocabulary of the, of the human voice. And the human voice is the original instrument. 
So you're going back to the very beginnings of, of utterance. Mm. And I think that's why when you hear it, it brings up, you know, in a way it's like um, the memory of being a human being. Mm. That's kind of where I wanted to come with you is, you know, how this way you've lived your life through these media of music and art and and also your, your Buddhist practice, um, mm-hmm. you know, how has your idea of what it means to be human, you know, where... How do, how do these things shape that in a particular way? Where, where are you with that right now? Well, I think, you know, what What I'm so grateful for every day is just that I've been able to do what I love. Um, music and art, I mean, it's something that, how can you even articulate the scope of that? You know, that, that's, that you are part of that, that you've been allowed to be part of that, and that you've been allowed to share that with people all over the world, that we've we've traveled all over the world and have shared this, and and then these amazing people, you know, in my life that mm. have helped me so much. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's it's been a wonderful life. Mm. <laughs> it's the name of a movie. <laughs> but, it re- you know, it really has. Yeah. Is there anything else, any song or work that you'd like to talk about or something you're working on now? Well, there's one song that's uh, an unusual song for me that also does have a little bit of text in it. It is a song that I wrote when I first started doing the formal sitting practice, which was in the, the mid-'80s. And most of my songs deal with emotion, you could say, between the cracks of emotion. You know, it's they're mm-hmm. not really dealing with a particular, you know, anger or something that you can point your finger at. I usually think of them as the shades between the emotions. Mm-hmm. And that the voice can dig those shades of emotion out. But I, I got very inspired. Um, the, my early um, practice was in the Shambhala training, which was created by Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche, and um, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And these teachings usually come out during times of, of hard times in the world. Shambhala was a, a mythical kingdom that was uh, ruled by an enlightened king who asked the Buddha to not come with his monks, but to ba- basically come and teach him how to have enlightened society. That's the tradition. And in many, many different Asian countries, Shambhala is like a mythic kingdom. It's not only in the Tibetan tradition. And so it's very much about how do you become a citizen in this world? Very simple, down to earth. Your practice is very simple, but you it's very much about how are you in the world? You know, how do you look at the person that's counting change for you in the in the uh, you know, the grocery store, or how do you deal with a person that you don't get along with well? How are you waking up all the time to see what the moment is? How are you how are you on the subway? <laughs> you know, how are you when something really bad happens to you? You know, just how do you become a citizen in this world and um, perpetuate nonviolence? And, you know, there are many, many aspects to it. And one of them is about fear and fearlessness. And it's about acknowledging your fear rather than pushing it away because a part of the violence comes from not even acknowledging that you're afraid. It's actually that you're afraid of the fear. Right, but And then what happens is that, 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 yeah, that mm-hmm. gets pushed down and then that gets transformed into to anger or violence. You know, I mean, it's really so much of the world that we're living in now, you know, what's going on and the way that people are manipulated or these wars or violent situations come from basic fear and terror, you know, and not in, ter- in terms of terrorism, yeah, but, but terror human terror. Mm -hmm. So um, I started thinking about that. And then I started working on a song that's called Scared Song. Mm -hmm. 
I think that that's quite an unusual piece for me because it really is dealing with a very specific emotion. Well, and I'll tell you something piece, funny. In that, um, please. <laughs> on the list, it's misspelled. It's called Sacred Song. <laughs> I think yeah. that, that's well, in iTunes. They have it it's as Sacred Song. Somewhere I saw it. And, but it's, in, yeah, and it's an interesting mistake, I thought. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that too. The, how, how interesting, you know, I, maybe the computer saw Scared Song and then changed it, it to sense. Sacred Song. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. how could there be a song called Scared Song? That's right. impossible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so in that one also, the, I do have words, but again, they really kind of disintegrate into um, states of being. Meredith Monk is the founder of Meredith Monk and Vocal Ensemble. She's also artistic director of the House Foundation, which oversees her vocal and interdisciplinary projects. Her performance works include Mercy, Impermanence, Songs of Ascension, and most recently, On Behalf of Nature. Meredith Monk sent us a list of about a dozen songs she's recorded over the decades, songs that are especially meaningful to her. You can listen to them and all the music from this hour on the show playlist. Find that at onbeing.org. To download a free copy of this show or to listen to my unedited interview with Meredith Monk, go to our website at onbeing.org. The best way to stay on top of everything we do is through our weekly email newsletter. We're transitioning to a new user-friendly vendor, and we also need current subscribers to renew your subscription. It's easy. We just need your email address. Find that newsletter link on any page at onbeing.org. Produced by Chris Hegel. Stephanie Bell is our coordinating producer. Our senior producer is Dave McGuire. Trent Gillis is senior editor. And I'm Krista Tippett. Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, acoustic ecologist Gordon Hempton on silence as an endangered species. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.